0: days his professor describes himself as (laughs) pro-American because you can only be one or other obviously this view of anti-Americanism as a tendency is strangely reinforced by both polemicists, people who say you're either for us or against us or which side are you on in this debate but also reinforced by behavioralists and I in my readings of American political science know this is a home of some people who are trade and behavioural analysis, and I'd be interested to hear their responses, I suppose, to my, my real concerns about a lot of behavioural analysis of anti-Americanism, particularly, I suppose, the biggest on the block being the Pew surveys. The Pew surveys are a very dominant kind of in our discourse of anti-Americanism because they provide what seems like wonderful data on how the rest of the world thinks about America. But really, that data derives largely in the reporting of it from this one central question, and this question is, asked the people in Jordan, or Britain, or France, or Germany. The question is, please tell me, on this day, if you have a favourable, somewhat favourable, somewhat unfavourable, or very unfavourable view of the United States. Poor choices. Now, most people around the world answer at this point in time, and have since really the Iraq war, lead up to the Iraq war, somewhat unfavourably. And that is largely reported as an increase in anti americanism if that indicator goes up. But, as you might sort of uh, surmise, what makes someone answer that may be a sense of frustration about the Bush administration, a, a very specific concern about a policy in Israel, a concern about the Iraq war. It may not really indicate that someone is anti-American. But the Pew reports it that way and journalists follow and it kind of trickles down uh in that regard, and I think it's rather misleading. So for me, seeing anti-Americanism as either on a sort of a scale, as a tendency, or which side are you on, it's really far too imprecise. As scholars, we should, we should, sort of, uh, we should really be very sceptical, in my view, of that understanding. Now, the most simplest and straightforward way of seeing anti-Americanism is as a pathology, to say that anti-Americanism simply must reflect an almost allergic reaction to all things American. Now, that's precise, very literal. A couple of French scholars have argued this line in a book called The Rise and Fall of Anti-Americanism, but it's almost entirely useless because no one would probably make that standard. People like Fidel Castro, you know, they make exceptions. Minorities in America. Bin Laden, maybe, you know, but, you know, there's going to be such a small category. You put the term out of circulation, pretty much, by using this definition. Precise, but... Not particularly useful. So then we come to my third understanding, and I suppose this would, I'd say, be my preferred understanding, is to see anti-Americanism as a prejudice. Now, not enough work has been done in this regard, and this is often rejected, and when I occasionally give talks, people get upset about this, because they tend to see prejudice as something that you can only feel quite often towards historically disadvantaged groups. And how can you say that if the United States or people who are seem to be quite clearly dispossessed. However, anti-Americanism as I see it has many of the common markers of prejudice. Prejudges, often very one-sided, looking at evidence, doesn't really differentiate between particular individuals or issues. So for me, this is really the, probably the most useful way of seeing it. But if you're going to raise it to calling it a prejudice, you've got to treat it seriously. You don't just throw it around. Um, similarly, as you might treat hopefully terms like racism, seriously, or anti-Semitism, and of course there are going to be people who abuse the term, but scholars, we've got to, you know, try to demarcate. Lastly, we might see anti-Americanism as an ideology, and this gets, of course, much more complicated, not least by the fact that the term ideology is a very contested term, and Anyone who's spent a fair time reading uh, books on theories of ideology will know this is a very, very messy term. In a simple way, we might call on, uh, say, the ideologies of of Castro and say, well, that's anti-American ideology, or post-79 Iran. But in general, as a belief system, I struggle to think that it's actually possibly reached the bar in terms of what qualifies as part of the school of ideology. And this notion takes that I'm sort of drawn to takes a lot of its cues from a Cambridge scholar, a guy called Michael Frieden, who is an Oxford or Cambridge, but one of the two, tremendous, mm-hmm. tremendous scholar. Anyway, these—how do I apply these definitions? How do they play out in the real world, kind of case studies and recent events? Well, the first one I want to look at is the Iraq War, and I want to look particularly, and because it became a sort of a series of. Um, Of inquiries, tribunals in Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Service's coverage of the Iraq War. Now, most of you will know that Australia is one of the few countries that, when America decided to go to war in Iraq, wanted to become closer to the United States as an ally rather than further away. Our Prime Minister, John Howard, has had a long ambition to see Australia much closer in its alliance with the United States. We've sent troops to Iraq. We haven't pulled out, as some of the other countries might have, that sent troops earlier. We've had a sort of strong sense of loyalty. Now, the coverage of the Iraq war by our main broadcaster, our public broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, came into real criticism soon after the Iraq war. Large numbers of people in Australia, probably is worth saying, is a background weren't so happy with the decision of the government. There was very large protest, maybe a couple of hundred thousand people in Sydney. And maybe the broadcaster reflected that this was an issue where there was clearly different shades of versions of opinion. Now, the ABC's coverage of the Iraq war was called by our Minister of Communications, or our Senior Minister of the government, anti-American. And this led to two inquiries. He targeted a number of particular shows and a number of particular comments. There was a whole kind of laundry list of, of anti-American statements. So for, a, for an academic, for someone like myself, it's kind of quite useful because I've got kind of testimony, theories. It's got quite, quite neat kind of uh, material to work with. And largely, what he was concerned about, and I suppose the comments that came in for the most criticism in the inquiry, were comments which questioned the truthfulness of the American Defense Department, the Pentagon and uh, Donald Rumsfeld. With hindsight, some of these journalists are probably feeling rather sort of uh, good about their criticism, their scepticism, but I suppose at the time, the particular sort of uh, scepticism they held was to do with this issue of civilian casualties, and particularly words like collateral damage, smart bombs. There was quite a lot made of this in the reporting, kind of questioning them. Largely, I think, as the inquiries found out, two inquiries... An independent one and a sort of internal one within the ABC found that there was no systematic anti-Americanism. They censured a few comments, said that the comments were maybe a little sort of uh, snide, maybe a cynical, but there was no systematic anti-Americanism. So I'm really looking at this this case in its sort of fullest. and I'm, I'm write something, writing something up about this at the moment for anyone particularly interested in the details. It really seems as largely a misuse of the term of anti-Americanism, that the term is really employed as a political kind of football. It's a way of sort of uh, making the journalists at the ABC maybe a little nervous about their funding because it comes from the government, about maybe their uh, ongoing sort of employment. So it's it's quite clearly a tactical use of the term and really, in my view, doesn't qualify as anti-Americanism. It's quite an abuse of the term, really. However, cast our minds back to the 1950s in the second case study, I want to give you a case where I see... this notion of anti-Americanism being very clear-cut. This Australian journalist I mentioned before, Wilfred Birchard, rose to a world sort of fame to some extent as a journalist in 1945, where he was the first white unsupervised or Western unsupervised journalist to go to Hiroshima and report on the bombing of Hiroshima about a month after the atomic bombing and wrote reports which were very sort of uh, dramatic in the British press, as you might imagine, of what he saw and the, sent this warning, I suppose as a famous headline, as a warning to the world of what might happen. So after this, he wrote to some extent on this kind of uh, notoriety of this and became very involved in the Korean War. During the Korean War, he largely reported from the side of the North Koreans and the Chinese and this was quite unusual in this war. And one of his great allegations that got quite a lot of press around the world and became quite an issue for a time in the early 1950s was the allegation that the United States was involved in germ warfare in Korea, that it was dropping bacteria, rats, fleas, clams uh, into North Korea and North Koreans were dying of things like cholera, um, typhoids, smallpox, various plagues and the like. And this was reported very heavily in the Chinese press. In fact, in one month, in 1952, there was more reporting in the Chinese press on this issue of German warfare claims than all other reporting on the Korean War to that date in the Chinese press. Huge issue in the Soviet press as well. To buttress these claims, the Soviet Union, and particularly China, uh, organized these so called international commissions of scientists, people from, uh, sympathetic people from England and Sweden, largely members of the Communist parties in those countries, to go and prove that this was the case. The coverage starts to spread, I suppose, around networks, and the co- uh, sort of Communist networks, particularly taken up with gusto in France by the French Communist Party. And in 1952, when General Ridgway visits Paris for uh, discussions on NATO, there is a large protest in Paris, a couple of hundred thousand people from memory, where a lot of them have signs saying things like the bacterial general. So there was this widespread belief, I suppose, in Birchard and his reporting, and this is where I first kind of came across this idea in a number of books mentioning his name around these Paris uh, protests. To further boost the claims the North Koreans and the Chinese were able to obtain 25 confessions from American servicemen particularly airmen who'd been shot down that they'd in fact been dropping germs into North Korea. And my journalist Mr. Burchett was heavily involved in transcribing these confessions and was um, somewhat party probably to the what really turns out, as this turns out to be a hoax, and really the fabrication of the story, <coughs> the building up of the propaganda case for this story. These confessions were undoubtedly gained through torture. Uh, there was a lot of, there's a lot of evidence of this, the nature of the confessions, things like uh, the Wall Street imperialists of America have uh, forced us as pilots to <coughs> drop these uh, germs into the innocence of North Korea. I've been sort of exploring this case for quite a long time, been fascinated by just this sort of, you know, historic fascinating kind of great, obviously, example of a sort of anti-Americanism as, it, as, as it at its extreme to some extent. But it took me a long time to get to the evidence. I read a lot of books on the Korean War, and they were all sort of, oh, well, it probably didn't happen, but maybe, you know, who can tell? And very recently, as uh, the Library of Congress is such a place to sort of... Uh, find yourself uh, reading all sorts of odd things. I started reading this journal called Critical Reviews in Microbiology and came across some recent uh, Soviet archival material that had been uh, written up by this scholar. And the Library of Congress is about the only place that has this journal in America, so I was quite fortunate and some of the other materials backing it up. And it turns out this is a completely manufactured hoax as... A lot of Soviet documents have come out being sent to China saying, look, we know it didn't happen, we probably shouldn't continue saying this at the UN um, because we can't really come up with any evidence. Sure, we've planted some evidence and we've got some infected areas and we've buried some people we've said uh, on camera died of germ warfare, but, you know, that was other diseases. So it turns out there's a very large sort of uh, probability that it was entirely was a hoax. Now what was someone like Birchett doing, this Australian sort of muddle-headed or well, I suppose as some people would see him, agent of influence, doing in career? Well, quite clearly he, he, he really goes well sort of beyond the notion of an objective journalist and you know, really enters into this other side of really a kind of partisan-style reporting. So my notion of tendency, I mean, it's quite clear in this kind of Cold War context of, you know, One side are the Americans, one side is the the Soviet and the Chinese and the North Koreans. And he's just, you know, this guy's taken sides. And this is really all the evidence he wants to see. He's written a couple of books, which um, in sort of hindsight of my recent revelations, of really finding out pretty sure that it's a host. Make make for quite funny reading, Uh, you know, and touching bugs and uh, this kind of uh, on-the-ground behavior. And I suppose it really draws us into, this. it's just a classic example of prejudice. He really only wants to see a certain thing. He's fed a kind of ideological line it's very close to the Chinese and North Koreans, and really just becomes a sort of a, a propaganda agent for them, an anti-American propaganda agent. So, very much you know, loses in my view I think credibility. Although there was a network of people around the world and still is in Australia who will defend him who say this is a courageous man who told the story of the other side who uh, you know, went fearlessly where no one else would go. There are prominent historians who will still, still uh, say this in a somewhat disappointingly I think if you, if you really get down to the sort of nuts and bolts of the evidence. Before all of this starts to sound like an endorsement of American behavior in Korea, it most definitely isn't. But the point, really, that I'm wanting to make is that in the Korean War, a lot of wars, but I think particularly Korea, if you look back on it, there was a desperate need for critical journalists, for differentiated commentary. And Burchard, in the very small handful, there's this is guy, the guy, Alan Willington, I think is his name, who was another journalist working with Burchard, really, unfortunately, really did a lot of a disservice to a critical position on American foreign policy in Korea by taking, was largely, this kind of, uh, you know, blinkered anti-American view. Because if you look at the Korean War more generally, you know, number of tons of bombs that were dropped on North Korea, the use of napalm in uh, retirement. Curtis LeMay was to once comment that in the UN or US... Air bombings of North Korea that nearly every town in North Korea was laid to waste, and some also in South Korea it was an accidental uh, fire bombing of one of the South Korean cities. If you look at the death toll it 's probably civilian death toll in the North Korean in, in North Korea amongst civilians was approximately somewhere up towards a million people. Um, which was very high in the ratio to the number of soldiers that died, particularly North Korean soldiers. Of course, Chinese there as well. Uh, if you look at a number of more specific examples, you can get uh, you know small sort of uh, writings about just coming out. One of them won a Pulitzer uh, in the late 1990s about American um, pilots killing refugees, possibly accidentally, possibly out of fear, as they were fleeing back into South Korea. Uh, there was a controversy over Americans accidentally um, breaking a ceasefire during peace talks and uh, killing a number of Chinese and North Koreans during a peace talks time. So these are the kinds of issues that really needed to be explored. But there very few people doing it as coverage either tended to be, I think, at the time very much, overwhelmingly, kind of, which side are you on of the debate? Where are your loyalties? And therefore, a whole series of questions never seem to go, be asked about, well, how to, a degre- to what degree was the bombing campaign of the US that the US largely led justified? To what, just what extent was it proportionate to the threat? Uh, you know, what sort of uh, was the attack on civilians um, a legitimate approach to carrying out this war. And this, I think, maybe this historian uh, of, uh, of note in the Mershon Centre is, uh, is uh, writing these historical problems. Um, I wish he was here today. Uh, Professor Millett, is it? Um, I would have been very encouraged to talk to him. But having, not being an expert on this area, but having read, you know, four or five of the main books and asking people, well, what are the standard histories of the Korean War... <coughs> It's very surprising how, particularly in the English and American histories of this war, how many of these questions really aren't asked. Now, if you read what people consider the standard histories of the Vietnam War, a number of these questions would just be very standard questions about civilian casualties, about the sort of level of force, about the nature of sort of decisions that were made in particular battle campaigns. Now, scratching my head, trying to think, well, why wasn't this the case in North Korea? Why, Why... why is writing about the Korean War not only historically but as over time suffered this uh, maybe this problem of, of, of admission of these, of these types of issues the solutions or the answers that I've tended to come up with is to say well it was obviously a Cold War climate that a lot of the writing came out of very much a view in most of the hi- early histories of the Korean War from the 60s onwards that it was a limited war it could have been a lot worse it could have led to a nuclear war General MacArthur some of you might know, was advocating uh, dropping atomic bombs, nuclear bombs on China, so it could have escalated. It could have been a war that drew in the Soviet Union, so I'm sure there was a million civilians or more in North Korea killed, but it could have been a lot worse. And this tends to be a very sort of dominant fra- mindset that a lot of people writing on the topic get trapped in, I think, rather than saying, well, it's pretty bad to begin with, or at least potentially you could see it as bad. Um, they tend to think, well, it could have been you know, a world war. The sheer nastiness of the Korean regime, both at the time and since, I think, has led to people being far less sympathetic towards what happened to North Koreans. Uh, you don't get this romanticization of North Korea in the same way that you do with Vietnam, uh, the North Vietnamese of Ho Chi Minh, uh, Kim Il Sung uh, doesn't doesn't have that kind of writing. There were a few people. Um, <laughs> very very disappointing to read. An Australian uh, academic, a guy called Gavin McCormack, tried to present the North Koreans as the same way that some people presented the North Vietnamese, but it doesn't, doesn't really hold. Uh, North Koreans has came out fairly early, uh, killed a lot of their prisoners of war, uh, torture, you know, living under the regime soon after wasn't obviously a lot of fun. Similarly, the Chinese uh, role as well. So I think we tend, to, we tend to see the worst of both worlds, and I suppose this draws me back to this broader issue of anti-Americanism, that the Korean War seems a classic case of where reporters and, and continue, I think, largely historians, maybe this has been written by Korean historians in recent years that I haven't been able to read because I'm not reading Korean, that there seems to be this problem of the failure to get the balance right and the criticism doesn't really have a sort of the flowers of sort of criticism aren't really sort of uh, able to bud because those who were slid very much into a conspiratorial viewpoint. And I think this is really the dangers of anti-Americanism that once these people who did try to tell the other story uh, you know, got involved with the Chinese and the North Koreans, they seem to have just lost all sense of objectivity and they become really pawns of a propaganda machine. When you look, I suppose it started off with my categories, as, as I said before, really much suggestive of a kind of a prejudicial kind of mindset that you would almost believe anything about the United States is kind of characteristic, particularly of Birchett's writing on the Korean War. If you were to say, look at the Korean War case more in in a more general sense, I suppose, as I've alluded to in this talk, and ask, well, did things start to change? Did some kind of balance start to get restored to reporting that those who felt that they went on the other side could, or those who wanted to report a war from both sides of the case, who wanted to, say, report in Vietnam from the North Vietnamese experience or the Viet Cong experience or in the Iraq War from the civilian sort of perspective. Obviously, it seems that uh, in the case of the ABC, this Australian Broadcasting commentary on the Iraq War suggests that there has actually emerged in mainstream journalism a lot more of a space for people to comment, to be worried about civilians and, and troops as well of the side that you're at war with. And the Australian Broadcasting sort of uh, commentary of the Iraq War, in many ways, this is sort of, I suppose, a very hopeful sense of commentary developing when it comes to concerns about how enemies are treated, the justness of, of the level of military activity as as, as some form of success and um, how journalism has progressed if you look historically from the Korean War to the Iraq War. Now I'm only looking at really at two kind of, in my writing on this, two really specific case studies but I think I could generalise to say that there really is this progression um, you can really see this voice of people who are much more sceptical, who are much more interested in a range of questions that I think governments of course are going to at times be uncomfortable with, that governments are going to question as maybe being somewhat disloyal, but are still able to be voiced without feeling well, if we're going to voice these concerns, then we've got to be uh, you know, on side with Saddam Hussein or we've got to be you know fully sort of into the other camp. So I suppose the plea of most of my writing, really, in this kind of broader issue of anti-Americanism, is details. I mean, details of the Korean War were crucial. Not being drawn into kind of a camp response that you're either, you know, on one side of this debate or the other, because that always, I think, leads to a kind of around fortunate thinking and a really a disregard of for evidence. Birchard is a great example. And then, I suppose, lastly that with those things in mind, that there's a lot of room for criticism. There's a lot of room for criticism that I think, like any area, particularly for academics, that takes kind of notions of scholarly standards and evidence and uh, spending a time sort of really understanding and backing up one's point quite seriously. uh, there's, There's tremendous room for people to move there. And I suppose that's the thing that really got me motivated in this topic to begin with was that, it just all seems so simple in the way some people wanted to understand the United States foreign policy in recent years as if they could kind of, you know, need to read nothing at all and they'd know all the motivations of uh, the inner thinkings of the Bush administration and, in fact, Americans in general. So I suppose it is to sort of argue for that, that level of complexity there and to hold to some kind of sense of standards and some sense of scholarly kind of uh, rigor in, or journalistic rigor, as in, in the case of my case studies, uh, faced with things that you may be uncomfortable with or are instinctively worried about. I think I'll leave it there and I, uh, I look forward to your questions on any aspect of what I've had to say. Should I field the no, questions? Okay. <laughs> okay. Let
1: me start if anyone else like me I'm intrigued by the distinction between an anti-Americanism focused on American society and what let's say anti-Americans believe that society represents what its values are and an anti-Americanism in the way that you're using it which is what you called a robust critique or maybe a more than robust critique of policies of the American government I see the two as hugely different Because it would seem to me an American scholar, and there are probably a bunch of them in this room, can be robustly critical of the policy of the American government. But I don't think by definition that somebody who was born and bred in the United States and lives and works here can be anti-Americanism. I think that's a contradiction in terms. It seems like
0: you're slightly misunderstanding my point, though. I suppose my point is that there is criticism And that's a line that I'm very happy to be on that side of. And, you know, it should be robust. It should hold to the standards that you would hold in criticism in any other scholarly area that you're going to be refereed or you're going to have peer review. But then there's a line that you could cross on critiquing American society, on President Bush, on the Iraq, War, whatever aspect it might be. And that line, for me, on the other side of the line, is driven by prejudice the prejudice is a kind of motivator that gets you there. You don't look at the evidence or you only look at part of the evidence or you you move... You are you, uh, moved by only a certain number of kind of writers or you have, you're have you're, you're part of a camp or whatever it might be. And I think, for me, that's a pretty simple distinction. And it is one that people, I just, I think, to some extent, a lot more workers obviously need to kind of argue it through. But is one that i have you know become very comfortable to defend. Yeah. When the uh
2: when the British uh, basically had uh, the political leaders in the world, You talk about uh, pulling the tail of the very tiger. Um do you sort of see this as an overhead that just those along with the dominant and political and military power in the world or
0: do you see this saying you can't Yeah, I mean that's obviously a big factor. You know. If you're powerful, you, you're going to be noticed and you're going to, people are going to pay attention and they're going to be worried and concerned about your actions. Um, but I see this as quite something <coughs> quite well beyond that. Um, Anti-Americanism has quite clearly existed well, beyond time, well before the time when America was the most dominant power in the world, Probably, maybe since the sort of inception of America as an idea for the early colonial period particularly at the cultural level, at the social level, you get a lot of writings, particularly European elites, very concerned about what this new country would be, the threat that a mass culture offered, the lack of refinement, the lack of uh, concern for poetry, as de Tocqueville wrote about, or manners, as uh, Francis Trollope was to write about. So this this is a very long-standing kind of critique that people have had, and uh, probably a prejudice in many regards. De Tocqueville never read any American authors, but it said America had no great literature. Um, and this, for me, underlies anti-Americanism. Now, the rise, rise of America as a power, uh, the different waves of different periods of foreign policy that people have objected to account for, in the polls, what we call rises and falls of anti-Americanism, but for me there's just a kind of underlying unease because America is probably, for many people, this kind of par excellence of modernity, of modern capitalism, what some people would see as standardisation and these are things that a lot of people fear around the world they fear them in Australia they fear them in Europe in large ways and they long have. and I think that's what makes it quite a, a much bigger concept I think than just a fear of Mr. Big or a hatred of Mr. Big uh, in my view yeah. um, I was really
3: interested in the categories that you lined up for the anti-Americanism as such and I wonder where the following will be a call, namely the value system uh, from which a certain group of anti-Americanist critics uh, argue uh, to give as an example Germany, the two wars you mentioned uh, during the uh, um, Korean War. The situation of East and West Germany was quite different uh, in the sense NATO had just been established, they were forced into NATO at least many of them unwillingly forced into NATO, but they were very much relieved that if there were to be a battlefield it wouldn't be Central Europe. Okay. So anti-Americanism certainly came to the fore at the time around the question of pacifism and war. And in recent years Schroeder's re-election, or at least the first re-election, was due simply to the fact that he could play on German pacifism uh, and kind of twisting that into an anti-Americanism that is so uh, 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 strong until today that even the major newspapers uh, I are mean, just full of this anti-Americanism that I think derives very much from a certain value system and the value system for one is pacifism you, know, you know how you define it and how practical that is etc and the really other is the social system the <coughs> minute the social system is mentioned America has seen absolutely played everywhere never mind what the says about Germany mm-hmm. but as, a, a, as I think what play is as role is the only mm-hmm.
0: system of mm-hmm. the critics yeah I suppose the way that I've looked at Germany I've been doing some research with uh, Andre Markovitz who's written quite a lot on this from Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan The way that I tend to come at it is to really worry about the German position in regard to a kind of a populist. You know, there there are many things that I worry about about the United States and there are many things that I think at a cultural level, food being a very obvious example that gets raised people in Europe or in Australia or or the like. But these anxieties that you have about becoming... uh, you know, overweight or eating too much junk food or uh, having, uh, you know, the wrong kind of diet. It's easy to say, well, that's, you know, that's American culture. But really there's a bigger thing underlying that, isn't there? Um, kind of these are big sort of multinationals or these is, this is a, a form of kind of, you know, modern mass culture convenience. Um, you know, that goes well beyond America. Now, to, for people in Germany or people in Australia, you know, you may relieve some anxiety to say, well, you know, this damn American thing, but, you know, I mean, what are people in the United States who don't like those things do? You know, they probably, hopefully, you know, are forced to look for someone else to, uh, you know, McDonald's or whoever it might be. But they're much, they're much bigger things than I think any one country. Now, one country symbolise it for a lot of people more than others, but... It's, like it's just kind of a form of populism and American conditions and this kind of thing that Schroeder was talking about in the last election. Yeah? <coughs> <laughs> one note that I was going to ask you about isn't a lot of the
2: system mm-hmm. present with modernity um, and modernization and talking about the United States? And the second thing I want to ask you about was is so why do they hate us debate? You know, Zakaria over at least couple years ago. And it seems that there should be two tiers, be two outcomes, right? But one is that they hate us. Are and the thing is, what we do, right? So we mm-hmm. bomb Muslims and we exploit Latin America and we ignore Africa. Or at home we don't take care of our poor and we don't have a welfare state and we don't Do like you have a sense of that? I'm gonna ask you certain parochial entity. Yeah. Where, where I anticipate that this question is going to come up every single time I teach. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that that's sort of the debate, right? It's like they yeah. had sort of like an ontological argument. Right. It's like it's what we are. It's yeah. what sort of process are. It is like it when we sort of like strap bombs on a plane to fly off the long
0: country. Yeah, planes, I think right? I think it's very comforting for some very well-meaning Americans to think, well, it's just a change of policy. I went to a Fulbright function in Washington a few days ago. <laughs> and There's a lot of people saying, well, if we only could get rid of Rumsfeld you know, we'd be liked again. And this kind of, you know, this is a very temporal kind of very sort of uh, historically, I think, sort of uh, limited view. Sure, policies make a difference, undoubtedly. But these underlying things that I, talk, I suppose I'm talking about, these anxieties, um, you know, they're going to remain there. Now, whether it's fair to entirely blame America for those, I, I question. But I think they've been there for a long time. And they're so separating out what we are from, you know, what America is from what it does. There's a kind of a neat distinction, and we can play around with it. But ultimately, they're they're, they're combined, and it can uh, the you know, people's responses to the United States are much more unconscious, I think, in many regards than I think a lot of these polls come up with. They seem to suggest people are much more... uh, you know, much more clear-cut in their thinking. Most people's response to the United States is ambivalence. You know, Those kind of things they worry about, things they like, things they... Now, that ambivalence might have tilted a little bit more towards a negative direction in recent times, but it's, it's full with contradictions. It's full with contradictions of, like, in certain aspects of the United States culture, <coughs> and worrying about others. In the, even in the Pew surveys, when people are asked if bad things are being done to an ethnic minority around the world, within their own country, who would you most trust to come and do something to save innocents? The first choice is still amongst people in these other questions who've largely argued they're somewhat unfavorable to the United States or very unfavorable is the United States. The United States is the first choice, not France, not Britain, not Russia, not China. So it's a very contradictory tendencies that you can see going on. Um, And it's not clear, you know, separate these things out. I tr- you know, anyone academically working on this is kind of want to harshen sort of these things off, but if we kind of are reasonably truthful about it, there's a real mess of kind of you know, things that people think about. Not surprisingly, a huge country with nearly 300 million people and its own history. And, I mean, we pretend to actually be able to talk sort of <laughs> in great generalizations often about such topics like this. Yeah. yeah?
3: In a couple of places, you've suggested that there's a mirror image relationship between anti-Americanism and, well, pro-Americanism. You know, when you say you're pro-American and you want anti-American, you talked about the rhetorical use of anti-Americanism as an accusation to sort of power. this the middle. You've talked about a polarization on one side, and we yeah. can certainly yeah. see a polarization on the other where evidence is also not... You know, so on. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering to what extent do you see anti Americanism as a kind of dialectic process in response to the rhetoric on the other side, or to what extent do you see it emerging from these autonomous or these, these sort of distinct issues, such as concerns about modernization, such as mm-hmm. um, anxiety, power um, discussion. Just to what experience. extent are they mutually dependent?
0: I suppose my kind of starting point in my approach and what I've been working on in this uh, this work is to really make people who instinctively uh, are drawn to the concept of anti-Americanism and use it uncomfortable and to make people who deny it really uncomfortable as well. So I'm just kind of you know, I'm I'm likely to get injured while sort of going across the fence here. But I I want to sort of question the both the people who instinctively throw it around as a rhetorical term to a sort of as a conversation stop or as a pejorative and also the people who say, no, no, there's no such thing. You know, my comment, I love American jazz, as some critics like to say, so therefore I can say anything about American foreign policy because I'm not anti-American. You know, I've got three American friends. Um, So... (coughs) You know, it's is to question both those both sides of those are really kind of simple uh, positions and very commonplace as well uh, in political debates. You know, and, and it's not surprising, I suppose, that on Fox News or on uh, you know the equivalent at the other end of the political spectrum, that's the kind of you know toing and froing that you're going to have. For me, was disappointing is that academics, people writing in sort of scholarly way, haven't really tri- gone beyond that too much that I haven't really transcended that in any great way to say oh hey. you know there's political debates of political debates in you know, feared about sort of uh, the use of the term liberalism or <laughs> America there's a you know very sort of uh, you know debate based off in a lot on caricature but when you get sort of want to sit down and spend hours working on this and write a book or something, I suppose then you've got to you've got to kind of go beyond that so. Yeah, I suppose that's where I'm at. Whether it's a dialectic, I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm still in that stage of working through these things. A question from there, and then back there? Could you
2: tell us something about the subsequent history of Wilford's protection? In
3: the 60s, 70s and 80s?
0: In no well sort of uh, <coughs> reviewed history book of the Korean War have I read has anyone categorically said that these claims of bacterial warfare were incorrect. So this is very recent Soviet archival evidence. So that that's to me what's interesting because there is a sort of group of scholars in Australia who have defended him. It. He's a great champion of the oppressed, the other side, uh, these kind of, I suppose people who have seen America since the Cold War or even since the Japanese kind of part of the Second World War as an imperialist power have kind of it as why not, a bit of a folk hero. Uh, so I'll be interested in what this evidence... I intend to write to a couple of prominent historians and say, well, this is interesting. How how might you sort of think about this? Because it probably involved to some extent in torture. You know, very close to torture. He would have known <coughs> about it. It would have been in the same compound. So that... Well, that disturbs me to some extent, I suppose. And there have been a few people who have kind of tracked his career uh, prominent Australian political scientist by like the name of Robert Mann, um, who's written on this. But his career after uh, the Korean War was to become very close with Ho Chi Minh. He wrote 32 <coughs> books, Wilfred Burchard. Uh, he wrote a number of books promoting uh, the just cause of Ho Chi Minh wrote a number of books on how terrific a place China was under the uh, Cultural Revolution. He becomes really just (coughs) a a classic kind of Cold War propagandist in many regards, but has kind of gone through this recent, uh, a bit of renaissance in Australia because his his autobiography was re-released at about 800 pages and a number of people have said, well, this is one of our great journalists and the story of him being at Hiroshima is an incredibly powerful story uh, he braved his life uh, the Allied command didn't want him to go there he sat on a train with surrendered Japanese soldiers for about 20 hours or so as a lone white man uh, with really sort of nothing to protect him you know, it's an incredibly courageous story it doesn't also make him a great journalist given what he, I think what he did subsequently but it has a fascinating for me he's been a fascinating figure of, of our history, of Australian history, to look at and say, well, you know, how did this? How do people feel about him? How do people write about him? Was he seen quite clearly as a sort of uh, prejudiced, sort of knee-jerk anti-American, or was he seen as people like John Pilger, as some of you might have heard of, as a great sort of independent voice, as a as a rebel, as a you know, uh, uh, that kind of thing? I suppose really sort of worries me about. Some states of how what's seen as often left of center criticism, um, you know how desperate at times it becomes. Um,
1: I, I think your two case studies are really interesting, and I was I was just thinking what you know what you'd get if you made the Vietnam War one of your case studies, and you know that's it's a subject that I've written about and I've taught courses on the Vietnam War for a number of years. And let me just give you my take on it i I'm interested in your response. I think if you look at European protests uh, during the Vietnam era, especially among young people in places like Germany, Italy, Denmark, maybe even Britain, I think what you see are people who are going over the line in your own terms, people who are seeing the United States as genocidal. In West Germany, the Americans come to be identified as being the the, the new Nazis. And there's this young generation, been there's been an interesting um, series of articles written about this. It's actually this uh, kind of coming together among the young generation in West Germany where they are criticizing the United States, partly as a way of criticizing an older generation in West Germany, it's been argued, but but regardless. So I, I see this as a great case of people meeting their conditions of what is going over the line really excessive criticism. And yet, and yet, I would add to this, who do they make common cause with? Anti-Vietnam protesters within the United States. Who do they have close contact with? Anti-war protesters in the United States. They listen to American rock. They wear jeans. They identify with many of the things that we would call American culture. I think it's a great Mm -hmm. example of the the (coughs) description of the ambiguities and paradoxes of this. I, just would be interested
0: in your response. I mean, the Vietnam War is obviously such a tr- huge case study, and I suppose to some extent I've avoided it uh, in what I'm saying today because it a- opens up, you know, many dimensions which I, you know, I'd have to, to be on top of to I think make some of the arguments I'm trying to make about Korea. I suppose your last point about well, these guys listen to Bob Dylan or they listen to American rock. I suppose it gets to my kind of starting point earlier on when I'm talking about my categories. That clearly someone can be anti-American in their critique or in their writing without it becoming a pathology, without it having to be every aspect of their life. And I think you can identify some someone's you know maybe romanticisation of Ho Chi Minh or uh, someone's analysis of uh, the Vietnam War that only really looks at American atrocities and doesn't look at atrocities on the other side. Or you know it's, you could say well yeah I mean that you could have that as a candidate for anti-Americanism. But, you know, and you'd have to, I think, go through a series of, a, of kind of, if you want to do it in the way that I've tried to do it, you know, step-by-step analysis. But I suppose I'm pulling back from also that broad kind of categorization. the German youth were anti-American or the, you know, such and such group were, I mean, for me that's not probably that particularly useful. And it's probably more specific. That's why I've been interested in these specifics of Birchard, Australian ABC... Um, coverage is to say, well, you know, if you're going to use the term, when would it be appropriate and used uh, with some degree of precision? Uh, and there, are, for me, there are, there are there are cases of it. I mean, there are some scholars who would tell you, or some people would tell you, that oh, it's just a Trumped-up notion. You know, this doesn't exist. No, it's, a, it's a figment of some people's imagination. I have to, I think, a of basic
3: methodological question. someone who, who we were talking about before? I also. I I just wonder practically what are fair metrics for measuring it? You know, it's hard to on you know, one hand it's clearly phenomenal, on the other hand, it's hard not to be
2: anecdotal uh, or, or just draw from, from personal experience or historical studies which
3: the light has to. And if anything, to think how would is poll useful, the newspaper articles, economic statistics, you know, what what's fair game or what is something that we feel comfortably that you're going beyond your own experience? Certainly I, I would view you know, personal experience a lot of what you said. Or, you
0: know, was to it mm. Well, I suppose it's you'd approach any other area you're, you're wishing to study and be published with credibility. I mean, that's what's amusing to me or interesting about this is uh, one of those subjects. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, this would disturb some people, but maybe similarly like writing about George W. Bush, people don't actually need to know anything about the topic. They don't actually need to have done any serious research to have a strident you know, unchangeable completely sort of uh, fixed position on these things, and I see that as, as, as somewhat, somewhat odd. Um, so I suppose that's, that's the kind of thing that I, you know, that, so that whatever you choose to use as your evidence <coughs> and you think stands up, you know, that's your decision or anyone's decision, but um, you know, on a couple of years ago I got sort of interested in reading biographies of George W. Bush and people who professed to be experts on it. And very few of them had actually spent any time kind of visiting uh, places where he had grown up, didn't have any great sense of his relationship with his father, was often always a big topic of discussion, but no one had done really any sense of archival research. Uh, So a couple of years ago, I went to the Bush Library and... um, in, what is it, College Station, not the most attractive place in the world, I would suggest, but uh, to look at the archives and look at, well, what did his father write to him while well, he was president and vice president? What kind of development of the political career was this young guy trying to, uh, you know, get through his father? How did this contrast to Jed Bush? That's what it seemed like very, very basic research to do, um, to me at least, if you're going to understand someone's motivations, their talents, whatever. I, just, I, can't, I haven't come across anyone is done something as so simple as that. Um, and the evidence is quite interesting. There's an incredible contrast between what Jeb Bush and his father talk about and what George W. Bush and his father talk about. And you know, it's just a bit of basic scholarly work that it just hasn't really been that kind of thing done because people already know You know, that they don't need to read it. And that, I suppose this is the kind of thing that worries me. It's just the normal, uh, the normal standards of scholarship that uh, you might apply to your own area of expertise.
3: Yeah.
2: Just a common observation. Uh, I was very much impressed by what you're trying to say here. Uh, Sigma wrote a book once uh, called The Psychopathology of Everyday Life. Intellectuals so find you okay, right? I'm talking about pathologies of everyday life, ordinary people. We don't have a book on this stuff about the pathologies of intellectual life. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, that? You know not You've yeah. a couple of what, mm. you know, frankly, or where do we don't use very often, lies. Mm. You do like you have to say. for all intents and purposes. of life. And then the second pathology is uh do we going along with it? idea of giving me support, etc., etc. Mm. Actually, in both cases, oh, in this second case, the case of we have is conformity. Mm. And the electors always build themselves as critical. And other people are conforming. Mm. But especially in our world, it's really astonishing to come on conformity. Are you talking about virtue or virtue well, life. I
3: mean, oh. well, I you
0: to <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I can see what you're saying once you become committed to a certain set of arguments and positions and maybe hopes about the world and the evidence might be thrown at you in a contrary way uh, that upsets those hopes and your heroes um, you know it's sometimes it's uh, it, it's probably brave the person who says you know that okay I was, I was mistaken I am you know, I to build this person up in a way that's probably, uh, you know, doesn't deserve to be the case. And I suppose that's, you know, I suppose why I've always admired to the extent, uh, to a large extent, the writings of George Orwell. I mean, you get an Orwell this, you know, constant, this kind of coming back to some of this, the sense of, you know, when questioning the prejudices of others, you're constantly question your own prejudices. Um, you know, it seems to me a, a sort of, seems to me the right sort of, way to proceed, but I suppose once your friends start to have similar views to you and your group and your your centre or whatever, you know, changing direction or kind of acknowledging sort of stubborn, unfortunate evidence, uh, it's not always easy. And you're not always looking for it.
2: (laughs) 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 No. I want to thank uh, Brendan for coming and uh, we've recorded this so I hope we can share it with him soon and thank you very much thank you all thank you